Hey, it's Andy from Talking to Teens. It would mean the world to us if you could leave us a five-star review. Reviews on Apple and Spotify help other parents find the show, and that helps us keep the lights on. Thanks for being a listener, and here's the show. You're listening to Talking to Teens, where we speak with leading experts from a variety of disciplines about the art and science of parenting teenagers. I'm your host, Andy Earle. We're here today with Jesse Prince talking about which aspects of your teenager's personality, identity, skills are innate and what is shaped by culture and uh, situations in which your teenager finds themselves. There's a lot of talk lately about genes, about brain chemistry, about how we're, we're pre-wired for certain things. And there's definitely some truth to that. There's definitely a lot of evidence for certain innate tendencies in humans. But what Jesse has found in his research uh, is that so much is shaped by the world around us and definitely true for our teenagers. Jesse is the author of the book, Beyond Human Nature, How Culture and Experience Shape the Human Mind. He is a distinguished professor of philosophy and director of the Committee for Interdisciplinary Science Studies at the City University of New York Graduate Center. And he's going to be talking with us today about things like IQ, things like athleticism, deconstructing some of these concepts and looking at how things that we might think of as being innate or governed by preset, pre-wired abilities are really shaped a lot by our expectations and by the situations in which we find ourselves. And we're also going to be talking about language. We're going to talk about the language that teenagers use to describe themselves, the words that they choose to define who they are and who they want to be in the world. And we're going to look at how parents can recognize those words and, and use them properly. We're really, really excited to dive into all of that and more on the show today. Jesse, thank you so much for being here. So talk to me about this book. Now, I've been reading your book, I said, for the past couple of days, Beyond Human Nature, How Culture and Experience Shape the Human Mind. This is obviously not something that you just kind of uh, decided to write on a whim. There's an impressive amount of thought and research that clearly went into this. So talk to me about where this came from. What was the evolution of this um, idea, this, this argument that you are threading through this book? And why do you, did you think it was so important? that you wanted to write a book about it? Well, I, I've always been interested in how the mind works. And as somebody who pays attention to scientific research on the mind, I was struck at the extent to which we've been buying into a very biological view. So yeah. when we're trying to understand human behavior, we're again and again told, my genes did that, my neurotransmitters did that, evolution did that. I think it's natural at a moment when it feels like neuroscience and genomics are advancing to look in those places to understand ourselves. But I began to think that more often than not, those styles of explanation 
we're leaving a lot out. Not only leaving a lot out, but we're we're even damaging and, and destructive. They do have a very complicated history that includes some real breakthroughs of understanding, but some real abuses. So people have used presumptive biological differences to explain why male students outperform female students in some fields, why white students outperform students of color in some areas to yeah. explain why certain aspects of behavior might be inevitable because they're universal, to treat mental illness as if it were merely a matter of taking the right pill and not understanding the social factors that, that contribute. So I think for anyone who works with young people and is trying to understand how they're getting along in the world, to assume that the challenges they face or the ways in which they excel are simply fixed by their genes is potentially not only incorrect, but missing out on possible aspects of explanation that could make a real difference. You take a pretty strong stance in this book that many of the things that we think of as being sort of innate abilities or hardwired into us are maybe not as innate as we think they are. Yeah, I really, I do think everyone in this conversation believes that nature and nurture both contribute. And of course, that's true. I mean, if we had the sure. brains of squirrels, we wouldn't be having this conversation or <laughs> wearing clothing or, or living in uh, the kinds of shelters we inhabit. But it is you know, equally true that things like clothing and shelters are very much products of human invention, not human innateness. So our biology gives us the ability to do stuff that other creatures don't do. But that ability, the key to human uniqueness is really our capacity to recreate ourselves and our worlds. So humans are, are in a certain way unique among the animals of the world and that so much of our lives are inventions. And we're talking central conflict of the book or the central argument that you're making is kind of this division between naturism, nurturism, we're, we're arguing on the nurturism side of, of the spectrum here. What are sort of the, what are the two ends of the scale? Or like, talk to me just a little bit about what the viewpoints are and why people would be in each of those camps. In a way, um, the two viewpoints can be thought of as methodologies. They're ways of thinking about a problem. They're assumptions okay. we take when we begin to look for an explanation. And yeah. the, the naturist begins with the assumption that what we observe in human behavior is biological. So if we observe a difference in group behavior, say a difference between boys and girls, if you're a naturist, your default is going to be, well, that must be because there's a biological difference between the sexes. The default yeah. assumption for the nurturist is the opposite of that. It's going to be, let's look for what factors have, have led to that difference, what factors of experience, what factors of socialization, what factors of even oppression or political forces or, or bias have led to those outcomes. So for example, some, some years uh, ago, uh, Larry Summers, who was then president of Harvard University uh, in a you know, private correspondence meeting with some other educators was musing over the possible sources of the different outcomes for women and men in sciences. And yeah. he was struck by the lower enrollment rates for women in science majors at Harvard and thinking out loud about what this might result from. And his go-to, his starting place was biology. He said, maybe just women aren't as gifted at this naturally. Uh, so their lack yeah. of presentation in STEM fields in the, in the core sciences 
is a function of some difference in how, how young women think. And he was quick to dismiss the possibility that there might be gender bias or gender discrimination. And what's revealing about that is twofold. First of all, that biology should be the first place you go is, is an indication that he's an, a naturist, that there is this deeply rooted mode of explanation uh... that appeals to nature over nurture. But the other thing is, in this particular case, given that there is enormous evidence and lived experience supporting the conclusion that there is enormous bias and discrimination, to not think that this glaring factor that is clearly demonstrable, not at all speculative, might contribute is a bizarre oversight. It's an oversight that shows how yeah. deeply we fought into this biological view of behavior. Also, though, just in general, it's easy to feel like kids kind of just have natural abilities in certain areas and not in other areas and to kind of throw in the towel in certain regards. Okay, well, this maybe this isn't my kid's thing, but hey, she's really good at this other thing. And so maybe we'll focus there. But I mean, you really like break down a lot of arguments in the book for what, where people have said, hey, this is this is innate and look really at this a lot of specific studies showing that, well, maybe it's not as innate as we think it is. Do you think that we're, we shouldn't be putting our kids in boxes that, that, you know, hey, this is kind of what my kid seems to be good at. Isn't that kind of like our job as parents is to figure out what they're innately talented in and kind of like facilitate them in pursuing that? You know, in a way, there's been a cultural shift in years that, that followed Sigmund Freud's very strong influence on our understanding of behavior. Everyone blamed the parents. We, you know, we thought it was all really uh, nurture. <laughs> Freud's views are more complex than that. He thinks there are okay. innate, in fact, he thinks the Oedipal complex is innate. He has some very odd and outmoded uh, yeah, views, some, but, some, but he said he, some strange know, things. To, <laughs> there was this blame the parent model. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think yeah it's mom's when, fault. Yeah. It's mom's fault. And I think when parents saw behavior that they thought was self-destructive in, in their kids, they thought, oh, you know, this, this was my fault or institutions around them would blame them for that. Yeah. And in a way, parents started getting themselves off the hook by uh, adopting a, you know, a nature model. The nature model allows us to say, I can't help uh, my kids' behavior. This is just hey, how they are. That's just, um, that's just how this kid is wired. Yeah. Exactly. It's, hard, it's hardwired. <laughs> uh, you know, the truth may be somewhere in the middle, but, but I do think from a perspective yeah. of parenting, one needs to simultaneously recognize that kids may have certain predispositions and their plasticity and their ability to change and adapt. The very fact that we send kids to school <laughs> Duh, shows that we we know kids adapt. They learn stuff they didn't I, know before. They can adopt yeah. new ways of thinking, new modes of understanding, new patterns of behavior, new patterns of conduct. If we didn't think that, we wouldn't send them to school. In the yeah. early years of childhood, parents correct their children's behavior every six to 10 minutes of waking life. Parents are constantly molding and shaping their kids' behavior. And that wow doesn't end in toddlerhood. It is something we continue to do and continue to try to do. But as kids develop their interests and their personalities, their self-conception and their peer groups, they become a bit more resilient to that overt uh, intervention on, on the parental side. And sure. sometimes parenting isn't, the, isn't gonna be the best means by which uh, they can be taken to a new place. But when we give up on the possibility of that change, I think we, we're making a mistake, a mistake about how minds work. Just one other thing on this point, you know, when a parent says that's not my 
kids' strength. Let's let's yeah. develop their strengths. There is room for bias there. So, for instance, there are studies that show that in high school, girls and boys perform equally in math. Girls sometimes a bit mm. uh, better, kind of better work habits, but their aptitude for math courses comes out the same as, as measured by, okay. by testing and grades and scores. But if you ask parents about their sons and daughters, they not only tend to think that their daughters are less interested in math and less capable of math, but the way they interact changes as a result. So for instance, when helping a daughter with math assignment, a parent might actually just complete the assignment. When helping a son with a math assignment, a parent will say, hey, here's a harder problem for you to work out. Hey, why don't you try this? Oh, I've got one for you. So this turned out to not only be true among you know, parents in general, but it's even true among parents who are sort of liberal side of the political spectrum, parents whose values would be wow. self-described as, as feminist, as progressive, as believing in gender yep. equality, believing there shouldn't be separate gender roles. So their overt beliefs about how gender differences work are actually not being put into practice when they perceive their own children. And so a parent who's, you know, obviously very in touch with and very concerned with, with a child's performance may nevertheless, because of this cultural overlay, have a false judgment. And of course, it's kids so too, because they're perceiving themselves. And a, a young girl might be socialized to say to a parent, hey, I, I don't really care about math. This is not my jam. I'd rather be doing something else. So all these um, ways in which the stereotype- Give up more easily. Yeah, those things impact self-perception and how we perceive others in ways that, you know, ultimately impact performance. But in those high school years, the impact hasn't happened yet. So parents really need to be thinking not just what is my kid good at, but they need to be on guard to, to look for ways in which their perception of that may be biased and how talents and abilities and skills are always a work in progress. I love that. And yeah, I mean, we've had a number of people on the podcast before talking about the SAT and um, how much your scores on the SAT can be changed by studying in the right way and how much it is related to socioeconomic status. Families that can afford to spend more on you know, tutoring and prep. Other kids tend to score a lot higher on the SAT, which is interesting because it's supposed to be such a measure of IQ and like this innate intelligence that people have. And well, it kind of seems like that's not the case. If you can change your score by 20% just by spending a few thousand dollars on some tutoring and prep classes. And I wonder just how many things are like that and how much we start to sort of write things off as well. That's just not my kid. My kid's not really good at that. My kids, that's not really their thing, but they're really good at this other thing. When, if we kind of just persist a little more or just kind of push them a little more in certain areas that they would be able to develop that capacity or that skill that we've sort of written off as like not being their thing. Yeah, absolutely. And I, standardized testing, I think, is really pernicious and deeply biased, both for the reasons you raise, which involve class. I do think the very fact that you can pay a prep company to improve your kid's test score proves that these test scores are measuring the amount of expenditure on education, not, not some innate ability. And given the correlation between SATs and IQ testing, it again would establish that IQ tests are not tests of some fixed 
level of intelligence, but are really um, also a function of uh, the amount of uh, expense that's been made on education. But there's another thing uh, which might have also come up in previous broadcasts, which is that there's a phenomenon that was discovered by a Stanford psychologist Claude Steele called stereotype threat. And when girls put their gender, uh, their sex on a standardized test form, they list their name and their, their sex, it actually degrades performance. Their assumptions about how women perform on these tests impact their performance. And there have been now dozens and dozens, really hundreds of studies on this effect. And it's quite robust. There was a study done at NYU where girls were placed in a room with boys taking SAT tests. And the more boys you added, the worse their test scores got. They just declined because their presence as an inferior scholastic performer became more and more salient to them with the added number of boys in the room. So it's extremely important to recall that all of these kind of measures of things that are supposed to be fixed features or our cognitive ability are constantly informed by social values, social biases. If you can change your scores that much on an IQ test, by how much you study or how much money you spend on tutoring, how much is IQ even really, does it really even exist? Yeah, I, I myself am a skeptic. I think IQ testing emerged at a time when people were becoming increasingly interested in measuring human differences. And uh, it was the same time period where the concept of eugenics was taking hold and people were thinking there are different aptitudes that are indicative of life outcomes and these are innate. And what we need to do is make sure the gene pool is protected from these negative influences. So people like Francis Galton, who is cousin of Charles Darwin and who coined the term eugenics, believe that poverty is a result of innate inferiority. And one consequence of this is that many countries in the West started creating mandatory sterilization programs. Um, so the United States and Sweden and England and uh, Germany, in the most egregious case, began finding that if somebody had, say, a cycle of poverty in their background or had too many kids uh, and was living up and, you know, without the means to care for them, or maybe uh, finding themselves in the criminal justice system with repeated minor offenses or major offenses, the best thing to do is to treat this as an innate defect and to uh, prevent these people from reproducing anymore. Uh, so a very, very sinister chapter in, um, in Western history. IQ testing was a big part of that. So somebody who was uh, found after, um, say, a criminal act to have a low IQ score might be a candidate for this kind of uh, sterilization procedure because they would be deemed an imbecile, for that was a, a name for a kind of innate incapacity to, uh, to make good decisions. So IQ testing has a very bad history and it was used for immigration quotas. It was used to justify segregation in schools and has continued to be used to argue for things like white supremacy, for patriarchy, to generate anxieties about an Asian threat, about a Jewish threat by worrying that some people's IQs are too high. So there's a very, very dark way in which IQs have been marshaled as forms of social discrimination and oppression and control. Now, you ask, is IQ real? I, you know, the, the kind of critical commentary here is political, but it's also scientific because IQ tests purport to be claiming something, measuring something, what they call G for general intelligence. And there are statisticians uh, who 
believe this is completely an artifact of the measurement. There is no such thing as G. The mind has many, many different kinds of abilities, many different kinds of skills, and there isn't a single underlying construct that drives all those skills. So somebody could be extremely skilled, say socially, or extremely skilled in maths, but not particularly good at thinking about skills that involve language, like you know, writing stories. There might be somebody who has amazing physical skills. And when we think about you know, prowess in, say, gymnastics, there's an enormous amount of intellectual ability that goes into that. But it might be of a different kind than the intellectual ability that comes in, say, the context of, of healthcare, of looking after people in needs and being sensitive to the social conditions and emotional states of members of your community. So once we start to just recognize what should be obvious, which is that human skills are, are widely, maybe open-endedly varied, the idea that there's a single factor, the G factor, that yeah. correlates with high performance in all of them is kind of a hopeless hypothesis at the starting gate. I already talked in your book about even autistic savants, people who are really, really skilled in certain areas and they're really, really low in other areas. And if there's supposed to be this general idea of intelligence that sort of drives all of these things, where is that? But I guess then also with what you're talking about, then, you know, people who are really skilled in gymnastics or certain areas, wouldn't that be that they're just innately a really good a gymnast? Wouldn't that be pointing us back to um, them having just, you know, innate abilities? I mean, sports are an interesting case because one of the factors that, that has a, the biggest impact on high achievement in those areas is, again, education and experience. So there are certain sports, tennis is a, is a classic example, where affluence is a high predictor of outcome and people without the resources yeah. to spend on special camps or have access to clubs where tennis is regularly played from an early age will we'll right. just not develop the skill set to be high achievers there. So lots of physical things can contribute to sports outcome. Just consider height. So somebody with greater height might be better at certain sports than others. Uh, right. No doubt that nature is part of it. The point is that nature is just by no means uh, sufficient without giving somebody who has the right physical traits, the right training, the right discipline, the right access to the latest sciences. We're in an age where sports involves diet, it involves uh, careful computer-based analysis of performance and correction of error on the basis of algorithms. Somebody who's not in a position to gain access to those resources is going to be at a really decisive disadvantage. really fascinating to me called the nurture assumption i was the parenting podcast so it is really interesting to me reading this book which really argues that parents don't matter that much that really peers are what's really important for kids as long as you're just kind of decent you're you're kind of good enough you, you don't really make that much of a difference and your kids kind of going to turn out the same way no matter what you do what is your take on that or given all the research that you've done do you like agree with the premises of what Judith Harris is arguing in that book. Harris's book was really a kind of, you know, big wake up call. I think it was, she was coming from, in some ways, outside the academy. She had a, she had a degree and was writing yeah. textbooks, but 
She wasn't known as a research scientist. She didn't hold an academic post. So I think when she came sort of from left field, as it were, with this hypothesis that was meant to shake up the orthodoxy, it was really an exciting moment. And I do think it is, uh, we'd all do well to, to listen to people who are maybe coming from a different background or different perspective, because academic researchers have a tendency to repeat and recapitulate and reconfirm our own biases. So if we're, you know, we talk right now in the context of social media and polarization about echo chambers and academia is an echo chamber and we traffic in a set of received opinions that we repeat to each other, design studies to confirm and congratulate ourselves on having uh, firmly established. When somebody looks at our fields from the outside, they often see things that we don't. I put Harris's book in that category. I myself, I mean, I think the formula, it's the peers, not the parents, is too simplistic. One point is just about methodology. If, you, if you're trying to figure out what factor makes a difference, the import of any given factor will always be inflated if you keep the other factors constant. So if you, if you control for one thing, then, uh, then the, the factor you're investigating will stand out. Now, it may be that if you look at, say, middle-class kids, you look at kids who fall within a certain demographic, say, North American middle-class kids, there are ways in which the parenting that they receive may be relatively uniform, consistent enough that differences mm. in parenting don't stand out statistically. So in the context of that kind of research, the impact of something outside the home might look much more important and parenting might look yeah. like it doesn't make a difference. Right. But if you design the study differently and instead kind of kept the peer groups constant, looked at kids all in the same school, for instance, and said, let's uh, see if the outcomes of test scores and kids in this school look different as a function of parental attention at home. Then my guess is you'd start to see big, big impact of parents. Everything matters. A single experience in a kid's life can matter. You know, health and nutrition, sleep habits can matter. Substance use can matter. And of course, peers can matter. The blame the parent formula can do a lot of damage because it's simplifying. The blame the peers one is equally old and problematic. And I, I can remember, you know, the moral panics of the 1960s where parents were, you know, worried that their kids were hanging out with the wrong crowd. And like, you know, maybe they were you know, listening to rock and roll with their peers and might turn into delinquents. I think those, those kinds of um, inflated views about peer influence need to be uh, looked at with, with equal skepticism. And instead, we should accept all of these factors as important. I also think yeah. that when we're playing the blame game, it's really important to recall that peers are often a place of refuge for teenagers yeah. who are not being accepted for who they are, for their identities at home. Finding a group of peers who accept you is a big challenge and a big achievement but also a place of enormous um, safety and validation. So creating a, a concern that peers are driving your, your kid in bad directions, I think is undermining to the development of kids' identities in ways that we need to guard against. You know, if you have a, a kid, for example, who's maybe acting out or maybe performing poorly in school, yeah. And you say, okay, well, they, they've just come, come into contact with the wrong crowd. Let me ground them. Let me get them to- to keep you away from those bad influences. Yeah, yeah, exactly. What you might be missing out on is actually their scholastic performance and their, their behavior could result from depression. Their depression could result from a struggle with their gender identity that's making 
it difficult to find comfort with themselves, comfort with expectations that have been placed on them from every direction. So if they end up with a group of peers who might not be emphasizing scholastic performance, might not be insisting on conformist behavior with respect to rules and regulation, but giving them place to figure out who they are with respect to some other dimension of their identity, that might be a safeguard against the really dangerous directions depression could take them. That might be an opportunity for self-discovery that could give them a foundation that puts them on much better footing for success well into the future. So I think you know, kids do act out, and one way they do that is finding peer groups who are able to give them free space to mm. break rules, to violate hopes and expectations for them. But often those peer groups are providing other goods with respect to identity formation that can be invaluable and have very, very long-term positive impact. We're here today with Jesse J. Prince, talking about how many of the things we often think of as being innate in our teenagers are heavily shaped by our expectations in which our teenagers find themselves. And we're not done yet. Here's a look at what's coming up in the second half of the show. I think in a way, this is a place where the science has failed us because there's so much focus on the biological contributions. There's so much tendency to presuppose that these differences are innate. We've stopped looking for the factors in life that can make a difference. So so to illustrate this in another domain, uh, 15% of the children of alcoholics are alcoholic, under 20%. So 80 percent who are you know getting the genes you know, have inherited uh, presumably genes from their parents who are um, mm. who are addicted are not showing the behavior. What makes you know so the majority are not so the genes are not destiny. But what makes the difference? And five percent of kids who don't have any alcoholism in their family do end up with alcohol uh, substance abuse issues. And palatability is a real thing. Like another example of this is being insensitive to your teen's pronoun preferences. You know, we say, oh, that's uh, hard. That's changing how we speak. That takes too much work. I always forget. I always yeah. knew you this other way. That's silly. Yeah. Language is core to how we understand ourselves and how we want to be understood. It's mm. core to, to our identity. People change names all the time. They change names when they get married. They use a nickname that they adopt in school. They are frequently using language as ways to redefine themselves. And people adapt to that without complaint. But there's a kind of resistance that comes in and people treat it as superficial. Oh, this is just a word. It's just a pronoun. That doesn't matter. Mm, Um, But it matters deeply. It matters because it's, it's integral to who we are and how we construct our identities. Language is this incredibly enhancing tool and has had you know, fundamental role in shaping the human story. If we weren't able to record ideas linguistically, we wouldn't be able to learn and build on the discoveries of previous generations in anything sure. close to the extent that we can. So if you say, you know, what's the difference between us and other creatures, language is going to be a big part of that story. But from the perspective of somebody who's not worried about the flow of history or the advancements of technology, language has another interesting feature with respect to thought, is that the language you learn can actually impact your pattern of thought and even how you perceive the world. English has this word pink. And for most yeah. people, if you say is pink red, yeah. they really have to pause and think about that. And they might disagree. Mm-hmm. Some people may say, uh, like, it feels weird to call pink light red. 
We don't think about no, pink no. the way we think of light blue or light green. We think of it as really a different mm. color. And not only is it a different color, but it's a locus of all kinds of social meaning. We think of pink as a feminine color. We think little girls yeah. love pink. We think that yeah, yeah, yeah. cis-hat men who wear pink that. are exposing a you know breach in their masculinity. Um, <laughs> pink, you know, is a color on transgender flags. It comes, it comes with a lot of social uh, meanings. But for totally. somebody who doesn't have a different word for red and for pink, who just would describe pink as a light red, they wouldn't even notice the difference between pink and red. Mm. If a cis heterosexual man walks around with a red shirt, that just looks maybe a little ostentatious and flashy and sporty, but nobody thinks anything about their masculinity. Want to hear the full interview? Sign up for a subscription today. You get access to all the interviews I've conducted, as well as new episodes weeks before the general public. It's completely affordable, and your subscription helps support the work we do here at Talking to Teens. Thanks for listening. I'll see you next time.